If you step out the front doors of the church, uh, preferably not at this moment, but uh, at the end of Mass, to turn right on 31st Street and walk or drive about two miles east, you will arrive at the fifth largest freshwater lake in the world. Lake Michigan gets its name from the Ojibwa word Michigami, meaning great water. A few statistics confirms the truth of the name. Lake Michigan covers 22,000 square miles of water. That's about the size of the state of West Virginia. Has 1,600 miles of shoreline. That's more than California and Rhode Island combined. And is as deep as an 85-story skyscraper is tall. That's the height of the Amoco building, uh, now called the Aeon building, I guess, on East Randolph. But Lake Michigan also has a reputation as a dangerous lake, the most dangerous of the Great Lakes. There are an estimated 10,000 shipwrecks lying at the bottom of the Lake Michigan, and statistics for drownings are staggering. A total of 30,000 drowning deaths since records have been kept, and that includes 300 in the past seven years. A number of these fatalities are the result of strong rip currents. Even though it borders the Mediterranean Sea, Israel was never a great seafaring nation. It's in the Jewish mind, water was associated with the forces of chaos and destruction. This is the story, of course, of Noah in Genesis. A flood of 40 days meant the undoing of creation when God separated the waters and the dry land appeared. To the Irish, a rainbow meant a pot of gold. To the Jews, it was a sign that God would never again destroy the world by the waters of a great flood, a promise that was, to the Semitic mind, as good if not better than a pot of gold. By the time you get to the Psalms, the image of the sea takes on other darker shades of meaning. You can see this in an example in Psalm 68. Save me, O God, for the waters have risen to my neck. I have sunk into the mire of the deep where there is no foothold. I have come to the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. This is not the kind of casual poetry someone writes after a long afternoon spent sipping iced tea in the shade beside a mill pond. It's the poetry born of a sense of urgency, a prayer from someone in dire straits. <clears throat> and whatever else is going on, the psalmist feels as though he has been caught by a rip current. We, we could spend an interesting morning on this subject, but this is not a survey of water motifs in sacred scripture. And besides, you probably have plans to spend the day at the beach. I feel compelled, though, to mention one other psalm, Psalm 107. We sing it every Saturday morning at vigils. It contrasts the helplessness of Israel with the covenant love of Israel's God, who, through thick and through thin, was always there whenever Israel was in trouble. The psalmist says, For he spoke, he summoned the gale, tossing the waves of the sea up to heaven and back into the deep. Their soul melted away in their distress. They cried to the Lord in their need, and he rescued them from their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. 
All the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced because of the calm, and he led them to the haven they desired. The story of the disciples on the lake and the image of Peter walking on the waters comes out of this rich biblical background of people in danger of, being, of drowning and their rescue by God's direct intervention. But Matthew's real intention, the heart of the story, comes at the moment when the disciples cry out in their distress and Jesus identifies himself to them. It is I, do not be afraid. Now this may not sound very significant to us because our translation does not quite do it full justice to the Greek, which reads, Tharsite ego eimi, have courage, I am. This is how God, in fact, identifies himself to Moses in the burning bush. Ego eimi, I am who am. Matthew shows Christ doing what God does in the Old Testament, walking on the sea, rescuing those in danger of drowning and identifying himself in the same way that God does. And Peter seems to recognize this is what Jesus is claiming because he says to Christ in Greek, Esu e, literally, if you are, I am, tell me to come to you. <clears throat> he realizes that if the God who brings order out of chaos is revealing himself in Christ, sharing the weakness of our humanity, then it must also be possible for us to share in the fullness of his divinity. And for a Galilean fisherman, this means that a man like Peter must also have the power to walk on water like a god. But Peter also knows that this is possible only by an invitation. Christ must invite Peter to come to him. The way to walk on the waters of fear and destruction is only by keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus, the Son of God, the friend of sinners, the poor and the weak. This is what the gospel is teaching us as we attempt to navigate the stormy seas of our political and social life. The modern secularized world tells us that we are masters of our own fate. We create our own world and we construct its meanings. With science and technology, we can solve all our problems by ourselves. No need for divine uh, intervention from above if there is anyone up there. But the moment we solve one problem, two more crop up to take its place. What's a mother to do? Coronavirus, injustice, global warming, inequality, joblessness, homelessness, it doesn't take long before it looks completely hopeless. This explains why we are such a regressive and anxious society, why so many people are angry about everything almost all the time, and why no one can have a civil conversation with anyone else about anything anymore. In the church, the liturgy is telling us to take Peter as an example on how to live in stormy and chaotic times. He steps out of the boat and walks on the water. But the moment he takes his eyes off Christ and focuses on the storm, Peter, whose name, by the way, means rock, sinks like one. The gospel 
is saying that it is right in the midst of all the chaos in our public and personal lives that Christ is found telling us, do not be afraid.